you would, go ahead and get your Bibles out. We are going to be finishing today our series in Ephesians, which we have been in for our entire first year as a church. So all you college students that were here and then you left and you came back, we're still in Ephesians, okay? Um, it, it has been an incredible journey that we have just been feasting on uh, this, this letter that Paul wrote to his friends in Ephesus. It was already my favorite book in the entire Bible, which is why we have been going through it in our first year together. But now it's even more special as we've like had this time together. And I know for the rest of my life, every time I read this letter, I'm going to smile even more thinking about our time in it together. And I hope you will as well. But today as we close it together, it's not going to feel very pleasant and I know that's a little bit sad, um, especially if you're here for the first time. Um, we, we are really kind and gracious, hopefully, uh, most of the time. But Paul's final greetings, while they are super kind and gracious, are not what we're going to focus on. I do want to read them, though, since this is how he closes his book. Look at them with me in Ephesians chapter 6, the last words. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love and corruptible. These are the kind of words that you would expect a guy like Paul to end his letter to his friends with. They're kind, they're really gracious, um, they're, they're, they're happy. It's like, hey man, I love you, I, I hope to see you again soon, but this isn't what we're going to be preaching on today. And uh, it's not what we're going to be preaching on today because even though these are his last words in his letter to the church at Ephesus, their story isn't over yet. There's still a lot of life left in this church or these churches that are surrounding Ephesus. And so Paul might have wrapped up his message and tied it with a nice little bow, but there's a lot more to be said and to be seen in the journey of this church. And what we're going to see today is that what is left to be seen has really dramatic implications on our lives. Not just as a church, as a brand new church. It's about to celebrate our one year anniversary, but as believers as individuals in our own relationships with Christ. You see, 30 years after this church got this letter from Paul that we call Ephesians, it's a letter, 30 years after they got this message, they got another message. But this one wasn't from Paul, and it wasn't from Timothy, who was their pastor. It wasn't from even John, who was hanging out with them. This message was actually from Jesus himself, and it wasn't good. Turn with me to Revelation 2 if you have your Bibles, because that's actually how we're going to close the letter to the Ephesians. If you don't have your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, we have free Bibles in the lobby. Take one. If you don't have one, you don't have to sneak out now. We'll have it on the screen. But look at this message to the church of Ephesus from Jesus in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now just some background, um, we've, we've just seen in Revelation, the end of chapter one, that uh, the seven lampstands represent seven churches, and the seven stars represent angels that were overseeing and protecting these churches. And so now Jesus is saying right to the seven angels and to the seven churches. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, 
and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Now, let's stop here for a minute because all of that is really, really good stuff. The king of kings has walked among their church. He's seen how they've been living and how they've been acting, what they've done together as one of his communities, and he commends them. He says, I know your works. Other people might not know your works. Other people might not know all that you've done and all that you've endured, but I know your works. I've, I've seen your, your toil. I've seen your labor. I've seen your, your patient endurance. He says, I've seen the way you've tested false apostles. I've seen the way that you stood up for truth, and even when it was difficult, even when it costed you everything, I saw how you didn't grow weary. I saw you how you had patient endurance. Not only that, but but he says, I saw that you didn't even do it for your own fame. You didn't do it for your own brand as like the church at Ephesus. You weren't building your own little kingdom so that you could get your church mentioned in the Bible. You were doing it for my name's sake. Now this is, I mean, by any standard in today's church, especially in the American church, like we would look at all of this commendation and be like, that's an amazing church. Um, I don't know how many churches in America could say this today. I don't know if, if we're being honest, if we could say this today. I hope so. But he's saying all these things that are amazing. Man, you've worked so hard for the Lord. How many Christians, how, how many of us can say, we have worked really hard for the Lord? How many of us could say that we have labored? Labor is like, Work is here, labor is even higher than work. Labor is like anxious work, like toil, sweat. It's, 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 it, it's an extra level of sacrifice. How many of us could say that we've labored for the Lord? Not many, right? Some of you know that if Jesus were checking in, this is what I've been evaluating all this past week. It hasn't been fun. But if Jesus were checking in, to see how you were spending your time, to see how I was spending my time. We know that his words wouldn't be this kind of commendation. I know your work. I know how you've labored for my name. I know how you fought and how you tried and how you haven't grown weary under the pressure. I, I, I know that I would be getting a different word. Maybe you do too. There's too much money to be earned. There's, there's, too, there's too much glory to be earned for our own little kingdom. Too many networking functions to attend to build our own fame, right? Too much work to be done to secure our own success. We live in Charlotte, and if you just moved here, you're in for a nice little awakening. Um, the, the number one thing that drives everyone in the city is not success. It's the appearance of success, Okay, you have to look successful, okay? So um, I, I got all of these like stats and research when I moved to Charlotte to figure out like what is the number one concern for people and it is to, to maintain the appearance of wealth. It's our city. And on the other end of the spectrum, for those of you who aren't even there yet, we got a lot of young people in here. We have a lot of my generation in here, a lot of millennials. There are 
too many shows to binge on on Netflix, to be busy laboring and toiling and working for the king. Too many apps to play on to keep you distracted. Too many games to play to help you stay at ease. Let's just be honest here together because the truth is that if Jesus were watching us and if he were assessing us, he is. If he were, not just as a church, but as his children, most of us wouldn't honestly be able to say that we get this kind of commendation. That means most of us wouldn't have made it this far in Christ's words to the church at Ephesus. Guys, I'm, I'm right here with you, okay? I'm not like coming down on you as like holier than thou or like this pastor that's got it all together. I am right there with you. I know what it's like to trade time struggling in prayer. Like over here you have this, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to God in prayer and I'm gonna do this labor. I'm gonna, I'm gonna toil for the souls of my friends. I'm gonna work in prayer. I'm gonna fight in prayer for the renewal of the church and for the transformation of our city. I know what it's like to trade that <laughs> for entertainment, comfort, ease. The latest documentary, I'm really into the family right now. I know what, I know what it's like and so we need to repent. Jesus is calling us to repent because Jesus isn't just walking around checking us out. Jesus is actually in us. He's given us his spirit. He's made us his home. He sees and he knows our works. So for the church at Ephesus, this was a good thing. Maybe for you, maybe for me, it's a wake-up call. But that's not what I want to preach on today because Jesus doesn't stop here with the church at Ephesus. He keeps going. Look back at Revelation 2. After this commendation, he says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand, which means I'm going to take the thing that makes you a church away from you. You're not going to be a church anymore. I'm taking away your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, again, the, the church has done so many good things. These believers have worked and they've toiled and they've labored. They've stood up to the Nicolaitans. They've stood up to these false apostles. And yet Christ was about to take their lampstand from them. In other words, he's again going to strip them of their title as one of his churches. And why was this? It's because they had abandoned their love. They had abandoned their first love, the love that they had at the beginning. And this is so important for us to hear. It's so important for us to wrestle with today and to understand because our vitality as a church and our legacy as a church and as believers hinges on this principle that if we abandon our first love, nothing else matters. If we abandon our first love, nothing else matters, not even our theological purity. 
Not even like how deeply we think about liturgy and our philosophy of ministry and our statement of faith and the way that we fight for truth and call out false teachers. None of that matters. Jesus says, listen, I love all of that stuff. I'm going to commend all of that stuff. But unless you get back to that love you had at first, unless you repent, I'm taking away your lampstand. That's huge for me. It cuts me. Because I like theological purity. And I'm good at being able to discern what's right and what's wrong. And evaluating those things. And calling out and being the prophet and all of that kind of stuff. And at the same time, neglecting the presence of God. Today, this is what we're going to talk about. The love that we had at first. I really have three goals. The first goal is to remind us of what that love was at first. To, to take us back to the beginning. My second goal is to try to figure out how in the world we lost it. Because I think to some degree, every single one of us in this room has lost it. And then third, talk about how in the world we can get it back. Because Jesus is calling us to get it back. We don't have to live in a state of perpetual backsliding and a perpetual hardening and, and I guess, freezing of our hearts. How do we get it back? So first, what was this love that we had at the beginning that we can no longer seem to find? It's the love that we felt when we saw Christ on the cross for the first time and we realized he was there for us. He wasn't just hanging there for the sins of the world. He was hanging there for your sins, for my sins, hanging there for us in the midst of all of our rebellion and all of our sin and all of the baggage that we brought with it, all of that damage and all of the debris that was left in the wake of our evil choices. We came face to face with the sovereign ruler of the universe. And rather than being greeted with anger and contempt and judgment, we were greeted with the embrace of a friend. Do you remember the first time you felt that embrace? That first moment when you saw yourself for who you really were? You saw the end that you deserved? And you kind of resigned yourself to it because you knew you deserved it. It's what your actions had earned for you. And then instead of getting it, you were swooped up by these arms of mercy and grace. Do you remember that? For the Ephesians, we know what this did in them. We, we know what this looked like because Acts 19 shows us their beginning. It shows us their conversion. It shows us the beginning of the church at Ephesus. Acts chapter 19, they saw all kinds of miracles. Like so many amazing miracles that if, if someone touched a handkerchief that had touched the apostle Paul, they would be healed. And there was this amazing revival that swept through Ephesus so much so that all of these believers are, are, are coming out of the woodworks and people are being saved and they're burning all of their old idols and all of their old magic books and everything that defined their, their once uh, pagan way of life. They burned so much of it that it was actually 50,000 pieces of silver worth of stuff and they didn't care. They had seen the power of God. They'd experienced the redemption and the forgiveness of his son. And they were like, man, we're, 
we're, doing, we're getting rid of all of this stuff so that we can follow him. We know what their beginning looked like. What was that moment like for you? What was that moment of enlightenment like in your heart and in your mind? I can still remember mine like it was yesterday. I had run from God for so long. I hated the thought of him. I hated the thought of what he would do to my life if I gave in. My dad's a pastor. I I, I knew that following Jesus meant giving everything, not necessarily vocationally, but I knew what it cost, and I didn't want to give it to him. And so I ran, and I ran hard. But then when I was 16 at a camp in Michigan, I saw his beauty and his worth and his glory for the first time. Everything changed. Now, slowly, some things he's still working on, still a major work in progress, but something's changed instantly. I started doing things I never would have dreamed of before. I had always hated church. Dad's a pastor, typical, you know, stereotypical pastor's kid. I did everything I could to get out of it. And so uh, whenever he was uh, preaching, especially in, in our older building, I'd sit as far in the, in the back as I possibly could, close to the side, like emergency exit. And, and I would wait for him. I would wait for a moment in time when he would look down, and I knew he'd look down to read for like a long portion of time. Because as soon as he would do that, I would sneak out. And I knew that he wouldn't be able to call me out, because that was my biggest fear, that I'd sneak out and he'd see me and he'd call me out before I could sneak out. And so he'd, he'd start his sermon, and I knew he'd look down at the text And if he's looking down at the text, he's not looking up. He has to read the text. And as soon as he looked down, I'd bolt out. I can remember as a fourth grader, as a fifth grader, as a sixth grader, you just go on and on. I I just roam around. I'd I'd vandalize the church. I'd steal from the church. But most of the time, I just went to the farthest part of the property, in the back of the property, and I'd hide behind a bush until the service was over because I hated it. I wanted nothing to do with it. I hated my dad. I hated the the burden that I felt because he was a follower of God and he labored for the, I hated it. When people looked at me and said, you've got to be this because your dad's that, I'd give them the finger and I'd do the opposite. (laughs) Then he saved me and everything changed. I, I started loving the church. Those people that I hated and I despised, I started looking forward to being with. I started getting together with a group of guys every week just to talk about scripture and pray together. I got sick and tired of the, the frivolity and the stupidity of lunch, lunchroom conversations. And so I'd start sneaking out toward the end of lunch and me and a couple guys would find an empty, empty classroom. We'd just start praying together, encouraging each other. Like, what's that? I started serving in the church. I started investing my time and my money into the kingdom of God and sharing the gospel with my friends. I actually started preparing for vocational ministry, the thing that I was running from my whole life. And it wasn't because I felt like I had to. I was so excited because deep within my heart was a love for my new king. None of it seemed like obligation. None of it felt like a burden. None of it was a duty. It was the greatest joy and the greatest honor in the world because I was doing it for the one who had given me everything. Do you remember that? 
If anything, I, I think I would have said, I wish there's more I could do. I wish there's more I could give. It's like the woman in Luke 7. That woman who took the most expensive thing that she owned, this jar of perfume that was worth an entire year's salary. And, and she had been forgiven of, of, of a lot. In fact, she, she might have even been a prostitute. Scholars are divided on that. She gets this jar of valuable perfume. She shatters it and she dumps it all over the feet of Christ and she's weeping and she's got her hair hanging down and she's wiping the feet of her Savior with her hair and, and in that moment she is giving him everything that she owns and all of these people around, even his disciples, are disgusted by it. They're appalled by it. The display of affection is too much. What she's giving is too valuable. Some of the disciples even say, why is she doing this with that perfume? She should have sold that and invested it into the poor. She doesn't care. <laughs> She's not thinking about how valuable that perfume is. Guys, if she had four of those perfumes, I think she would have broken all four of them. Because he had given everything for her. She couldn't control it. It was the natural overflow of a heart filled with love. I read a story of a Russian atheist not too long ago. It's actually one of the, my favorite books. I, I read it over and over again. Um, he was given a Bible by a friend, and he read it really for the first time with these new eyes. Look at how he described his experience. He said, the Bible my friend gave me was written not so much in words, but in flames of love fired by his prayers. I could barely read it. I could only weep over it, comparing my bad life with the life of Jesus my impurity with his righteousness, my hatred with his love. And he accepted me as one of his own. From that moment, Richard Wormbrand and his wife would do anything they could to help other Russians come to faith in Christ. Richard would experience imprisonment after imprisonment, beating after beating, torture after torture, first by the Nazis, and then second by the communists in Russia and Romania. But for him, it was the least he could do because of what Christ had done for him. It was an, it was an overflow of love. It, his biography is actually called Tortured for Christ. You can get it for free online. They'll just mail it to you. It's one of the most moving and inspiring books I've ever read. And this line sums up exactly what I'm talking about. He said, we were reckless and daring for Christ always saying that it was the least we could do for Christ who died for us. At one point, he's actually in prison with one of the men he led to Christ. And he's, he's thinking, I wonder if this guy resents me now. Look at the conversation. Look at how it went. He said, I was in prison with souls whom God had helped me win for Christ. I was in the same cell with one who had left behind six children and who was now in prison for his Christian faith. His wife and children were starving. He might never see them again. And so I asked him, have you any resentment against me that I brought you to Christ? And because of this, your family is in such misery. And he answered, I have no words to express my thankfulness that you have brought me to the wonderful Savior. I would never have it any other way. These are just a couple of moments 
But guys, what was this moment like for you? When you were brought to the Savior for the first time and love was awakened in your heart. Can you go back to it? Can you remember it? That first bright spot in your life when darkness was transformed to light. The eyes of your heart were awakened so that you could feel that it was beating for the first time after God. What was your love like in that moment? How you would have given anything for him and done anything for him just to please him. Guys, this is what Moses wrote about in the law. This is what he meant when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's this kind of love that we had at the beginning, every ounce of our being. This is what Jesus said sums up the entire law. This kind of love. And that's what the Ephesians had lost. That's what you and I have lost. Maybe you're sitting here thinking even now, man, I've lost it. How do how I used to love him so much. Where is it gone? How did I lose it? That leads to my second goal today, which is to show you how we managed to slip, let it slip away. And I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this point. We could probably spend, like we could, we could have a dozen points on this one because there's so many different ways. I'm just gonna focus on two. And these are the two biggest ones of my own life. Maybe you can relate. First, some of us have lost our love because we have replaced communion with Christ with the consumption of this world. We can never love Christ unless we're near to him, and yet I know one of my, um, I'm sorry, I just skipped over like half of my sermon. I don't know how that happened, but I really don't want to mess this up. Okay, let me see here, where are we? Bear with me. I wonder if it got deleted, guys. Yep, it got deleted. This is going to be off uh, the top of my head. <laughs> this is where the Holy Spirit gets to do his thing. Um, Okay, we've replaced communion with Christ with the consumption of this world. Um, so, and I know you're all so nervous right now for me, and you should be, um, but let me just set your heart at ease. I think I know where I'm going with it. Um, one of my biggest struggles is that, like, I work a long day at the office, I, I come home, and I've got like another couple of hours of, that's like way harder than work that Caroline's been dealing with all day with three little kids. And it's, it's great and it's a joy and it's an honor and it's a privilege, but man, it is exhausting. And, and so it's like you, you have your work and then you come home and it's like a couple more hours of wrangling kids and, and wrestling and breaking up arguments and trying to point them to Jesus somehow. And 
getting them through their bedtime routine of brushing teeth and showers and pajamas and stories and praying and singing and all of this kind of stuff. And by the time all of it's done, all I want to do is crash. All I want to do is veg. All I'm thinking about is the documentary on Netflix because I can turn my mind off and I can just lay there. Anyone else with me on that? Yes, even if you don't have kids, you're like, you think you're tired, and you are. You just, it gets more tiring, okay? You're tired now. It just gets more tiring. So you're right there with me. Um, I was reading one of uh, Charles Spurgeon's biographies uh, on, on his notes on his love for God at the beginning, and he would talk about how like, he would spend 10 hours laboring for the gospel every single day preaching, teaching, writing, counseling, starting ministries, helping the orphans and the poor and all this stuff in his city. And, and he'd come home and he'd be exhausted. He'd be with his family, had tons of kids. Um, and then he'd be so exhausted, he'd be so tired, he'd go to bed at night and he'd want to sleep through the night. But he loved the Lord so much in the, in the beginning days. This is like when his love was burning. That he would be excited about waking up every single night at like 4 a.m. just to pray for a couple of hours, just to be with God, because nearness to God was everything. I don't know if I, there, there have been some times that I've been able to say, yeah, I, I love waking up at 4 a.m. Like there have honestly been a couple of times where that's been true. Most of the time, no. Most of the time, I just want to sleep. Most of the time, my love for God is weaker than my love for my pillow. Anybody relate to that? More often than not, my uh, desire to get wrapped up in a movie transcends my desire to be wrapped up in the divine. Let me just talk about Netflix for a minute, okay? Because, again, this is like one of my besetting things. And I know it is for many of you as well. So when I talk about Netflix, and again, I'm not trying to beat you up, but I want to open your eyes. What we have to understand is that this technology that is so incredible, okay? Like, let's just be honest. It's amazing. We all love it. You don't have to watch commercials anymore. You don't have to wait for a whole week to see the next episode of your favorite show. You don't have to go to Blockbuster and rent or buy a whole series for like 50 bucks. It's all there, right at your fingertips, an endless ocean of options to satiate your entertainment longings. It's amazing. It's actually a huge reason that so many of us have lost our love for God. Our technology, our streaming services, our mobile theaters that we carry with us everywhere we go, our social media apps, and all of those other digital delights are not only distractions for us, but they are disadvantages to us as followers of Jesus. They are not neutral. They are not innocuous. In a lot of ways, they do more harm than good. There's so much secular science on this. 
about social media that I'm not even going to get into. But one study showed that um, a, a, a study of hundreds of adolescent girls who were on Instagram were taken off of Instagram and their happiness was measured over weeks. And after seven days, their happiness increased 40% off of Instagram. But we're not even gonna talk about secular science right now. We're talking about like being near to God, okay? In a lot of ways, the, the entertainment that we consume so much more than any other generation in the history of the world are actually propaganda devices of the God of this age, exporting his culture and transmitting his vision of the good life apart from God into our living rooms and into our dining rooms and into our bedrooms. And we don't just allow it, we soak it in. And we say, teach me. Show me what it means to thrive. Show me what love looks like. Show me what beauty is. Show me what success I should be chasing after. It's not neutral. And guys, it's not just that we allow it. It's not just that we even soak it in. We depend on it. It's what we look forward to at the end of the day. After that long day of work and that long day of labor and trying to, to wrestle all of the responsibilities, you know what we're looking forward to? <laughs> it's not the endless pleasures at the right hand of God. It is the endless choices of make-believe realities. That's what we depend on. And I'm saying we because me, I'm right there with you. It's what consumes our conversations in the household of God. What we quote verbatim to our friends. We can't quote a single chapter of scripture, but we can quote an entire episode of The Office. Not the treasures of the word of life, but the pithy frivolity of a lost and dying world. And if you think I'm being too serious about something that might have seemed totally harmless to you at this point, I can assure you that I'm not. Because every time we consume it, every time we partake in it, every time we do anything, and I've said this a dozen times since we've been in existence for the last year, it is doing something to us. Everything we do is doing something to us. Everything we consume is telling something to our hearts, and everything that we chase after is shaping our loves. Nothing is neutral. And here's the thing we have to get. <laughs> no other generation in the history of the church has had to deal with this. None. Which means that there are now more obstacles between us and the presence of God than ever before in the history of the world. But rather than being alert to this danger and concerned by it, we've been so colonized by our culture that we consume it without giving it a second thought. Friends, 
if the Ephesian believers who had seen some of the greatest miracles ever performed, who were led by the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary to ever live, and who, who were pastored by Timothy and John, the greatest apostle, the one whom Jesus loved, if they, if they had lost their first love, how much more could a generation addicted to entertainment, sport, and leisure not lose ours? So some of us have lost our first love because we've replaced communion with God with the consumption of this world. Another reason is, and again, I'm not going to mention all of them, I'm only going to mention two, but another reason that many of us have lost our love is that we've replaced communion with God with work for God. So actually what happened to the church at Ephesus, they didn't have Netflix to distract them, they had the Nicolaitans trying to destroy them. Um, They didn't have leisure to sidetrack them. They had leeches trying to suck the life out of their church. No such thing as fantasy football back then. They were dealing with false teachers and fighting for the truths of the gospel. They were busy about the work of God. And yet, there is a great temptation for those of us who are working hard for Christ to do a lot for him and at the same time not live with him. Some of you are hard workers. Some of you don't struggle with laziness. Some of you don't struggle with entertainment. Some of you struggle with the exact opposite. You're workaholics. And it's not just that you're working hard for yourself. You're working hard for the kingdom of God. Doing, laboring, toiling, checking off lists, accomplishing all kinds of good things with patience and endurance, but at the same time, neglecting communion with your Savior. He's become more of a taskmaster than a friend. He's become more like the boss at work than the lover of your soul. You see, for you, for some of you, if there's a choice between getting something done for God and resting in the stillness of his presence, you're going to choose the getting done every time. Any of you out there? You're like Martha in the kitchen. You remember the story of Mary and Martha? They have Jesus over into the home and Martha's cleaning and she's preparing and she's making sure everything is is done well and she's looking at everyone else who's not doing that and she's judging them. (laughs) Why aren't you working hard for the king? Why aren't you laboring and toiling for the master all the while her sister Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, basking in his presence, heart burning with love and adoration. And Jesus looks at both of them and says, Martha, stop working so hard and just enjoy me. Just be with me. Rest. Some of you are working so hard for God. At the same time, your heart is growing colder and colder and colder toward him. And 
you're looking at other people and wondering why they're not working as hard as you. Jesus is calling you to enjoy his presence. He's calling you back to himself. You're like the, one of those planets, you know. I don't know much about science. I could be way off here. I'm assuming that the planets that are farther away from the sun are colder. So like the further away you get from the sun, is that right? Is that science? The further away you get from the sun, the colder you get. The closer you are, if you're like Mercury, right next to it. You can't help but burn. Its heat is just engulfing you. The truth is that if planets that are closest to the sun are the hottest, the same thing's true of us, right? The closer we are to the sun, the nearer we are to Christ, the hotter our love will burn within us. Jesus was happy with the Ephesians. For all of you workers and all of you doers, I want you to be encouraged. Jesus was happy with their work. He commended them for their work. Lazy people are called wicked by Jesus. Okay, so be encouraged. Your work is seen and it is known. But if you're trading presence for work, Jesus wants you back. He wants you to get close, to come sit at his feet and simply rest. These are two of the most significant ways I know I've lost my love for Christ. I've replaced communion with him for consumption of this world, and I've replaced communion with him for labor and work and toil. Maybe you have other reasons, and you know them, and I don't even have to preach them because you just know the Holy Spirit's talking to you right now. He's speaking to your heart. The call is to repent. How do we get that love back? Well, obviously, by doing the opposite of what I just said, but even more importantly, we have to remember how much he has loved us. You know how we get love for him back? Going back to his love for us. To remember how much he has given us and forgiven us. How much grace he's lavished on us, the chief of sinners. If Paul could say that he was the chief of sinners, then like every single one of us should view ourselves in the same way. That even though we deserved death and punishment, he gave us life. 1 John 4.19 says, we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. Jesus said this himself in Luke 7 after, after the lady poured the perfume all over his, his feet and, and washed his feet with her hair and everyone's judging. He says, listen guys, do you know who loves the most? It's the person who's been forgiven the most. So if your love is waning, if your love is growing cold, if you want to get back to the love that you had at the beginning, you've got to go back to the beginning and remember how much you were forgiven much grace you received at the cross. Again, if we want to go back to the love that we once had for God, we have to go back to the love that he displayed for us when he pulled us out of the mire of sin and death. 
we need to remember that debt that we owed. Do you remember the debt that you owed? That you couldn't pay? We gotta go back to that and then remember that Jesus hung on a cross to pay it for us. Every single day, every single moment when we think about Christ, we need to remember that even while we were his enemies, he died to make us his friends. That while we were rebels and outcasts and lawbreakers, he gave his life to bring us into his family and give us his glory. It's going back to the first principles of the gospel, to those things that we knew once, but we sort of outgrew. That's where we'll find the love that we once had. And so that's where we need to stay, friends, at the foot of the cross. And I'll close with this, and I know we're about to sing this song, where there was a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, where sinners plunged beneath that flood and lost all our guilty stains. We need to go back to that. And we need to stay there. And when we're tempted to leave it, we need to repent and go back. And when we're tempted to see Christ as anything other than our Redeemer and our Savior and our friend and the lover of our souls, we need to go back to that moment where he proved it for us once and for all. We stay there. We pray that God will stir within us once again that love that once burned so bright. Let's pray.